in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Uh, that's a famous quote. If you've been around Christian circles at all, you've probably heard it. It's sometimes misaccredited to famous early church writers like Augustine and others. But the quote actually comes from the Lutheran theologian Rupertus Maldinius in the 1600s. And essentially what he's saying is, or what he's telling us to do is, hey, we can agree with other Christians about the most important things like the humanity and divinity of Jesus, the inspiration of scripture, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. These are essentials and we need unity around them. With just about everything else, we have the freedom to have different opinions. Opinions that we should respect with love. That's what he's saying, in all things charity. And that's one of the things that I really love about Christianity. It is a really big tent that can hold lots of different ideas and approaches. If you just go down the street here, there will be other churches worshiping Jesus who are going to do things a little bit differently than us, who might say some things a little bit differently, but we agree on this big thing that it's about Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. My atheist friend Dustin, he always points to this as, he's like, you Christians, you can't even agree. He's like, there's a million different churches because you guys can't even get all on the same page. And he sees that as a negative, but I really see that as a positive. That God has given us incredible freedom, incredible creativity to have these different expressions of church and Christianity while we're still united around the essentials. And you say, fascinating, Alex, thanks so much for sharing this cool quote, but what does this have to do about our series about eschatology? Remember, eschatology is the theology of how things end, and you're like, what does this have to do with that? Well, today we're talking about an idea that has three wildly different Christian viewpoints in the Orthodox historic Christian church. All of them are based in scripture, all of them have a long history of being accepted by different branches of Christianity, and they're all considered Orthodox. None of them are like some crazy out there theory. They all have scriptural, uh, good scriptural backing to support all three, and yet they're all three different. And I feel like this discussion is important in this moment because I see a lot of Christians online, on social media, um, who are bashing each other for disagreements about non-essentials. I'm on Twitter, I don't know why. It's a, such a toxic environment, but I am. And it seems to be like there's always two Christians fighting over something that Meldinius would be like, that's a non-essential, just show each other some love. Like, it doesn't matter. We seem to be entering, though, a new era, era of fundamentalism, and fundamentalism isn't unique to Christianity. Every religion can have it. Even non-religious secularists can be fundamentalists. Fundamentalism says, if we don't agree on everything, we can't partner on anything. If we don't agree on everything, you can't be a part of me, I can't be friends with you, we can't do stuff together. You either have to agree with me on everything, or there's nothing. It's all or, or nothing. That's a fundamentalist. Well, we see that show up in our politics a lot right now too, don't we? Not just social media, but even in Washington. We have too much fundamentalism in historic Orthodox Christianity. Now, all that we need to keep in mind as we explore today's topic, the millennium, the millennial reign of Jesus. To find out what all the disagreement is about, Open up your Bibles or your Bible apps to Revelation chapter 20. Let's dig in. It's a weird passage. Stay with me 
and we'll talk about what's going on here. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. He had the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, and he locked and sealed it to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image. They had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. A thousand years comes up a lot in this. And when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Even to Gog and Magog and to gather them for battle. In number, they will be like the sand on the seashore. They march across the whole breadth of the earth. They surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And you're like, wow, what a nice warm bedtime reading of the Bible before I go to bed. Right? This is a bunch of weirdness. It's a strange passage. And we're going to talk some more about this passage next week. Because next week I'm going to talk about how do you read symbolism and imagery? How do you read dreams and visions in the Bible? That'll all be next week. But for now, you might be wondering, why are we reading this? What does this have to do with eschatology? Well, the way you interpret this passage end up, ends up informing how you think about biblical eschatology as a whole. Your view on the millennium or the millennial reign of Jesus ends up coloring how you read and respond to lots of other passages about eschatology in the New Testament. What comes to mind when you, I say millennium? Thousand, yeah, that's literally what it means, 1,000. I think of the Millennium Falcon, but that's just because I'm a Star Wars nerd, you know? I had to have a Star Wars slide in there. I just did. Al would have appreciated it if he was here. The word millennium, though, um, means thousand years, and we can see that word over and over again in this passage. That's why it's called the millennium, the millennial kingdom. Um, and you see that word thousand come up over and over again in Revelation chapter 20. In Orthodox historic Christianity, there are three major views on how to read this passage, and in turn, whatever view you accept ends up coloring or ends up affecting how you read other passages about eschatology. The three views are amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. My gosh, that's a lot of L's in those words, right? It's hard for me to say. Now, just stay with me, because for the next few minutes, it's going to feel like a seminary class. And some of you are going to be like, yes, I'm such a Bible nerd. I love that. And some of you are going to be like, this is the worst moment of my life. But stay with me, because it's important to understand this. Because the preachers you listen to and the books that you read, people have a take on this. They take probably one of these three major opinions, and it affects what they say to you and how they say things to you. You probably have an opinion of based on one of these, and you don't even realize that there's a name or a title behind it. But let's hold on. I'm going to quickly go over these and then talk about their impact on our ability to be hopeful about the future 
and obedient in the present. First is amillennialism. Ah meaning no. Like if you're amoral, you're not have it, you don't have any morality. Um, even though it means no millennialism, that's a bit of a nis- misnomer. All millennialists believe that we are currently in the thousand-year reign of Jesus and his gospel, and that after the crucifixion um, and resurrection of Jesus, Satan was defeated and bound, but he's not completely powerless. Um, There is coming a day when he will be finally and forever defeated. They believe that the gospel cannot be stopped, but the church will be persecuted in this time, even as it advances the kingdom of God. Those believers who have already died, they see as ruling and reigning with Jesus in heaven. And then Jesus will return, and just before he returns, Satan will be released, and then Jesus will swiftly and finally stop him forever. Jesus will then rule and reign forever, uniting heaven and earth. And this view sees the thousand years in this passage as a symbolic number representing the time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming and him setting up his eternal kingdom. That's amillennialism. The next one is post-millennialism. Um, post meaning after, after the millennium. They also believe that the thousand years is a symbolic reference, just like amillennialists do, and that after the gospel has gone to every corner of the world, more and more people will be saved, and gradually the world will become better and better as technology and morality and peace prevail in the wake of Jesus' good news going everywhere. The church, in their mind, will increasingly influence a golden age of humanity that will result in the return of Jesus to rule and reign forever and reunite heaven and earth. This view believes that the gospel and the Holy Spirit cannot be stopped, that the great commission of Jesus will be fulfilled, and that the vast majority of the world will eventually become Christian, that earth will become a Christian planet, and then Jesus will will return to keep his promise. Um, Premillennialism... The final view means before the millennium. This view envisions the world becoming worse and worse, capped off by a time of profound judgment as the forces of Satan take over the world. This view envisions Christians escaping the years of tribulation only to shortly return with Jesus to enjoy a thousand-year reign before Satan is released and ultimately defeated, and then Jesus rules and reigns forever, reuniting heaven and earth. This view sees the thousand-year reign as an actual thousand years and an intermediate kingdom before Jesus's ultimate kingdom. There's also an alternate version of this theory called dispensational premillennialism, but I think we would all go insane if I went into yet another view of millennial. It's not so different that we need to spend extra time on it today, especially when that was so boring, and I appreciate you getting through it. Okay, everyone still with me? No one's bored out of their mind, okay. Each of these views is considered orthodox, historic Christian viewpoints on eschatology. Like, none of those are people like, that is wrong, that's just so terrible. All of them are based in scripture, all of them have devout followers of God throughout history who have taken these positions, they have scholars behind each of these positions, and why is that important? Well, for instance, the rapture is only a theory in one of these three orthodox eschatology frameworks. Um, The resurrection is a Christian essential. The rapture isn't. And so if that really messes you up, there's Christian viewpoints that are orthodox where that isn't even a part of it. It's not a scriptural fact. It's a way of reading some passages based on uh, the pre-millennial viewpoint of the reign of Jesus. 
In fact, there have been hundreds of millions of Christians throughout history who never had a concept of a rapture, this idea that God is going to take believers out of the world before a time of tribulation. And there's millions of Christians, devout Christians around the world today, who have no concept of that because their framework for the millennium doesn't include that. No one before John Nelson Darby, an Irish Anglican priest in the 1800s, who kind of read the scriptures and came up with this idea of um, dispensational premillennialism, had any concept of the rapture. He created and popularized this idea. And you say, why, Alex, does that even matter? Well, when I was growing up, I heard more about the rapture than I did about Jesus. Literally on Sunday, they talked more about the rapture and the fact that some of us were going to be left behind and you got to be ready. And, and I remember like being told, like, don't go see a movie. Because what if you get raptured there? Wouldn't you be ashamed to be sitting in a movie theater seeing a PG-13 movie? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. I should not go see that terrible PG-13 movie, you know? And there was a lot of guilt and baggage around it. The dis discussions were always about the terrible things we would suffer and endure if we didn't make the cut. It left me with anxiety and fear. But that doesn't seem to be what the New Testament authors wanted to leave us with. They want to leave us with joy and hope. I remember as a kid, if the house was too quiet, I'd be like, my family got raptured. I'm left behind. Oh, no. Or if you saw some discarded clothes on the floor, you know, did anybody's youth group growing up, you have pictures like this and be like, don't be one of the ones left behind, you know? What if the rapture comes and you had to be ready? I remember having a, a panic attack watching some of these, like, early 90s Christian movies with, like, terrible special effects. And apparently I'm not alone. Late last year, CNN had an article about millennial Christians who have anxiety and PTSD from their Christian upbringings, especially around the ideas of the rapture. Um, and honestly, the more I reflect on my growing up in church, many of the things I was told growing up was more about scaring me into behaving than they were about inspiring me into believing. And one of the things the New Testament authors want us to do is, as we look forward to the rule and reign of Jesus, they don't want us to be afraid. They want us to be hopeful. They want to inspire us to be obedient in the present because we can be hopeful about the future. When we speak of non-essentials as established scriptural fact, we undermine the scriptures and the beliefs of fellow devout Christians around the world. Um, and so at this point, you might be like, okay, Alex, you gave us the three views. Which one's right? I'm not going to tell you. Like, I just said all three are orthodox, accepted, scriptural viewpoints. And so you'll be like, okay, Alex, you won't tell us which one's right. Which one do you lean towards? I'm not going to tell you that either because it doesn't matter. Uh, that doesn't matter because ultimately all of them are scriptural, orthodox, historic Christian positions on the millennial kingdom. When speaking of the theology of how things end— in this series and uh, all my messages, I always want to emphasize the things that all Orthodox Christians throughout history agree on instead of trying to pandering, uh, instead of pandering to my preferred theories or my pet ideas. I'm always going to try to do that. I'm going to always say, you know what, Christians disagree on this. All three are good theories, all good are good viewpoints, and I'll give you options. So I'm not going to tell you which way I lean because it doesn't matter. What matters is what all these approaches have in common. What did all these theories have in common? The yeah, the Lord's return, Jesus' second coming. Yep. 
Jesus will rule and reign forever, reuniting heaven and earth. That's what they all get down to. That's what they all come down to. Occasionally, I see some Christian online post something, and then I see another Christian comment underneath, heresy. Like, there's no, like, counter-argument. They just write, heresy. Um, having a different non-essential belief than what you hold is not heresy. And so just to define some things, heresy is when you teach or espouse something that denies the basic historic orthodox essentials of the Christian faith. When you say Jesus wasn't human or Jesus wasn't divine, when you say that scripture is not inspired or you deny the life, the death, the resurrection, or the ascension of Jesus, those things are heresy. Those are the essentials of our faith. In the same way, I sometimes see people online accuse someone of blasphemy because they take a different non-essential position than them. Blasphemy is not say someone saying something you disagree with. It's misrepresenting the character or the nature of Jesus. And most often, it's something we're all guilty of when we say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, but we don't represent him well to the world, when we don't live and love like he did. When people distrust Jesus because of the behaviors of Christians, we are blaspheming, we are misrepresenting God. So the next time someone posts something online and you're like, boy, that's a dumb comment. That's a terrible take. Boy, they don't know theology. And you feel inclined to comment, think to yourself, is this an essential or a non-essential? I have come up with so many brilliant, clever comebacks on Twitter that I ask myself this question and then I delete it and I don't post it. So I hope it is also a good guide to you and not just for me. I want to take a few minutes here, though, to critique premillennialism, um, not because I think it's any worse than any of the other views. They all have flaws and strengths, and they all are orthodox Christian positions. However, it is the only view I grew up with, and I didn't even know there were other views. The churches I grew up in, and a variety of evangelical churches and Protestant churches, they never presented to me any other view than premillennialism, and they didn't even tell me that there were other orthodox, scripturally supported views. I didn't know that until I got to seminary, and I was like, wow, not everybody thinks this way. That's amazing. And I know some of your stories, and I know that this is primarily the only view you were taught as well, so I just want to talk about some of the things that I heard growing up that weren't helpful and in some cases were even harmful. Even if this view is correct, and I have many scholars and speakers I respect who lean that way, the way we have often talked about it has left people with a pessimistic fatalism about our world, rather than the hopeful anticipation the biblical authors uh, wanted to inspire us. Now, this is an extreme example, but this is a real-world example. I did not make this up. This is a real conversation I had with a gentleman in Tennessee when I was pastoring down in Tennessee. Now, he was, a, um, he was an engineer. He's educated, intelligent man, and he said to me one time in a conversation, he said, I try to pollute and destroy the world as much as possible so that Jesus comes back sooner. I was like, I laughed. I thought it was a joke. You know, I was like, surely nobody's that crazy, right? That's absurd. But he was dead serious. He's like, oh, yeah, I just pour my chemicals into the earth, and I vote for companies and people who are going to destroy the planet as quickly as possible to usher in the end of the world and the renewal of Jesus. Now, this gentleman, he was a faithful Christian. He was intelligent. He was educated. But 
the eschatology that his church had handed him had begun to impact the way that he lived. Now, this is an extreme example. He, he took like this to an extreme. However, I think this is an example of how the way we talk about eschatology can have real present effects on our world and on the way that we treat the world and on our lives. The way he envisioned the end, as explained by his church, led him to ignore all the commands about flourishing and overseeing the beauty and abundance in creation. His accepted theory on the millennial reign of Jesus had replaced the big story of scripture that we should be about the world's flourishing and the restoration of heaven and earth. Now, I don't usually see this as, like, that, that was such a unique example, but more often I see Christians who fearfully expect the tribulation and they nervously expect the world to get worse and worse despite their best efforts. I often see them paralyzed, unwilling to do anything, because what's it going to matter if it's just going to all blow up anyways? If the world's just going to be destroyed, what does it matter? Um, I've seen people who say, what does it matter if the world's just going to get worse and worse no matter what I do? If we're just heading to this bad tribulation, what does it even matter that I do a little good? What does it matter if the Antichrist is just going to take over? Why even try to make things better now? They resign themselves to fatalism. But the goal of these passages is never for us to throw up our hands in defeat and say, oh man, the future, it's terrible. That doesn't seem to be the goal of any of the biblical authors, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. They all seem to want to inspire us, not to make us fret or fear or anxious. They think we should be working towards and hoping for our garden city, the ultimate combination of the reuniting of heaven and earth, where God and humans will work and live together. They want us to be obedient in the present because we can be hopeful about the future. If you look at Revelation chapter 20, John is not that interested in explaining eschatology. He leaves enough wiggle room here that we have three different viewpoints. But here's what he does want to tell us. The devil the accuser, the Satan, the adversary, he loses. He's ultimately defeated. Jesus wins. And those who have suffered, who have been tortured and persecuted and suffered losses won't be forgotten. They will have justice. On the darkest day in human history, on the darkest day in your story and in my story, we can look ahead with hope because the end of the chapter has Jesus on his throne. And I believe his rule and reign will be so good, it will work backwards to undo sickness and violence and war and death and the devil himself. The rule of Jesus will make sense of our pain, and it will ensure a future without pain forever. This is what all the viewpoints agree on. Jesus will rule and reign forever, reuniting heaven and earth. Everything else is just details. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can look forward with confidence. And we don't know. There's different approaches. There's different ideas about how exactly everything will go down. But the good news is we know what ultimately happens. You win. Darkness, death, sin, and evil lose. You will have the ultimate victory. And humanity and God will live and work forever together. God, forgive us for sometimes getting so caught up on the details that we miss the important message that evil will lose, that good will win, that sorrow will be undone by the power and the eternal, uh, the eternity of your joy. God, make us faithful in the present because we're hopeful about the future. And I pray all these things like I believe you are.